Hey, uh, just to let you all know, when, you, when you're compiling um, your studies to do uh, teaching times, uh, typically in the summer, I either do series that I've done before or I shamelessly steal other people's material and claim it as my own. But my conscience is so bothering me about this particular lesson that I have to admit that all of the notes and all of the material from this were taken from a dear friend of mine, Tom Cannon, who's the pastor of Red Mountain Church in Birmingham, Alabama. So if you, really, <laughs> if you want to hear this again, you can just tune into his podcast from Red Mountain Church in Birmingham, which I would uh, warmly commend to you if you're ever in the Birmingham area. Um, so anyway, so I'll just acknowledge the fact that thanks, Tom, for all of your assistance and all this. So, Okay, Proverbs chapter 26, beginning in verse 13. Let me read this for you, and then we'll read the other one from John 18. Uh, Tonight we get to meet a very famous Old Testament character, someone whom the Old Testament refers to as simply the sluggard. Okay, Verse 13, the sluggard says, There is a lion in the road, there is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his head in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. So that's the uh, tale of the sluggard. Okay, John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. Uh, This is a story of Jesus before Pontius Pilate uh, during his trial. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, "Uh, Do you say this of your own accord or do others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Okay, this is God's Word. Hey, when I was in seminary, one of my favorite classes that I was interested in taking uh, was a class in the topic of apologetics. I don't know how many of you know exactly what apologetics are, but that's the, the theological study of how to defend Christianity to skeptics. Does that make sense? How to give an answer for the faith that we have. It's, it's kind of an intellectual, philosophical discussion. But it was one of my favorites because I knew that I was headed to the college campus. And I remember thinking to myself that one of the most uh, difficult parts of my job would be trying to give intellectual and philosophical answers to the people that were skeptical about Christianity, that looked at it from sort of a, um, uh, from the outside in. Well, you know, what I discovered actually really surprised me uh, because for every one person uh, for whom I had an intellectual, uh, philosophical discussion with about transcendent things, I met 10 people whose basic approach to life was, you know, I just don't care. (laughs) Um, You know, uh, I've had students oftentimes even acquiesce in the midst of a discussion about religion in general and say, 
Okay, so some guy 2,000 years ago died on the cross and rose from the dead. So what? <laughs> and it's been surprising for me um, to see that among college students. And it turns out that I'm not the only one. Uh, I was not the first RUF campus minister here at Ole Miss. As a matter of fact, there were three guys that preceded me. But the guy who was my immediate predecessor was a fellow by the name of Jeffrey Lancaster. And Jeffrey was very helpful to me in preparing me for what Ole Miss was like. And I remember asking him what he thought the number one problem on this campus was, spiritually speaking, among Ole Miss students. Um, And I remember him looking and saying, apathy. Apathy, the sense of just not caring, was the number one ailment. But the thing was, though, in the years following that assessment of sort of Ole Miss spiritual life, I I came to realize that that's not necessarily all that accurate. I'm going to tweak a little bit of what he says. Because the truth of the matter was, even though people might have said that they were apathetic, the truth is they were working very, very hard. One of my favorite stories, I've told this story before, but it, I always thought it was funny. Um, I was at a number of years ago, a certain uh, Greek event uh, that happens on campus sometimes in the spring, uh, early in the morning. And uh, I attended this thing because it's a lot of festive dancing and whatever else. And I was there. This was at the very beginning when I got here, like in 2000 or uh, 2001 or something. And we were there, and it was, it, seriously, it was 9.30 in the morning. And there were more drunk people that I had seen at one time in a long time. It, it was just extraordinary. And uh, I remember standing there and asking somebody who was kind of involved in RUF. I was like, so how's it going? And she was like, well, you know, we're having a little trouble keeping some of our group together because they just had a little too much to drink. And, of course, you know, instinctively, you just kind of check your watch to make sure, yeah, it's 9.30 in the morning. (laughs) And I ended up making sort of a sarcastic comment about that, to which her reply was, well, the truth was they were up, you know, since about 6 o'clock this morning. They made an announcement about it last night so that people could start drinking to ensure that they would be wasted by the time they actually got to the the event. And, of course, I sat there, um, you know, sort of furrowing my brow in amazement, and the guy next to me, who was a senior at that time, looked at me and just as deadpan as he could, looked and goes, wow, now that's commitment. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I understood something really profound about even people whom you would look at and say that they're totally apathetic. Even the people that you think would be the most apathetic are actually people that are constantly pursuing something in their life. There's a very weird interplay that I've watched happen, where on the one hand, there's plenty of people who seem to be devoid of any real motivation in life at all. But on the other hand, they doggedly pursue some means of either entertainment on a shallow level or even meaning on a profound level. And there's this weird connection. But at the heart of both of them is the sin that the Bible refers to as sloth as being what the Proverbs writer calls the sluggard. Um, And in many ways, this is one of the most misunderstood of the seven deadly sins that we're looking at this summer in trying to get a window into our understanding of sin. But we're going to try to unpack it as we have uh, been doing it, which is to first of all look at the definition of sloth, uh, to find out what's at the heart of sloth, and then figure out how we can begin to cure our sloth. It's really just honestly fun to to say the word sloth over and over again. I might do a little bit of a sloth later on as we get into uh, James uh, uh, Connery. What's his name? Sean Connery. 
What, what time was that in the podcast? That'll be edited from our discussion. Okay. First of all, the definition of sloth. What are we talking about here? Well, you know, sloth doesn't seem to deserve to be in the top seven if you think about it. Uh, you know, this is in the same group as pride and, 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 and anger and, and lust and all these other things. Um, you know, for a lot of people, <laughs> for a lot of people, you get to the topic of sloth and you think to yourself, you know, I'm, I'm clear on this one. Uh, because if you look at my daytimer, I'm so busy. You know, I'm super busy. I'm not the lazy one that you've seen. Um, well, that's a, a great misunderstanding about what sloth really is. Historically, if you go back into it, there was a 4th century Egyptian uh, monk named uh, Evagrius who was the, one of the first ones to teach on the seven deadly sins. And what he, he actually was one of the ones that had originally reduced the list from eight to seven. And he did so by combining uh, uh, apathy and despair uh, into one uh, which we now call sloth. The Greek word that's translated sloth is the word asedia, which means no care. Uh, it basically means, in simple, it doesn't matter. That there's nothing that really matters. In other words, sloth is just a, a listlessness about life. Uh, it's a, a despondency over the fact that there might be any meaning in the world. Uh, uh, It's a paralysis of the will to do anything. Sloth, right? Um, And one of the great sort of windows into the meaning of the word sloth is the animal that we know of as a sloth. This is a really interesting thing that Tom taught me about here. Um, Think about the sloth, okay? Uh, Sloth hangs in a tree all day. Uh, incredibly strange animal. You realize that two-thirds of a sloth's body weight uh, uh, comes from the content of its stomach. <laughs> um, incredibly lazy animal. Uh, it's very interesting that scientists know that the breeding of sloths is actually very typically delayed because it doesn't really want to be bothered with moving around to find mates for itself. When you're too lazy to pursue sex, what does that say about you as a creature in God's world? The sloth sleeps, what, 15 to 18 hours a day, they say. Um, But most characteristic is how it treats its young. Uh, You know, infant sloths will normally cling to the outside of their mother's fur, but of course occasionally they fall off. But sloths are very sturdily built, and very few of them actually die in the fall. The reason why infant sloths die is because their mother is oftentimes too unmotivated to actually go down and to retrieve her own young. <laughs> Look, even in the wild, that's bizarre. Okay, But you get this perfect picture of the idea of sloth as being this state of moral burnout. Um, in other words, a complete spiritual dejection that's given up on the pursuit of anything larger than themselves. Uh, The slothful person has no what we might call a social ideal, something they're looking at, a cause that's worth dying for. They they lack any sort of framework of meaning in life. There's nothing that can persuade them to give up on their own self-interest to do anything for anyone else. Nothing. In the midst of it, there was a a, a writer, English writer, who lived a um, a couple decades ago named Dorothy Sayers. She was a contemporary of C.S. Lewis and actually a a friend of his who wrote on sloth saying this. Listen to this quote. She says, It is the accomplice of every other sin, sloth, 
and their worst punishment as well. It is the sin that believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, and lives for nothing, and remains alive only because there is nothing it would die for. That's a vivid description. Look, it's important to note because sloth, and I like her definition there, is not necessarily the absence of work or busyness. Look, you can be very slothful and be incredibly busy. Sayer also says that one of the favorite tricks of sloth is to hide itself under the cover of busyness. In this form, a really full schedule that people keep is used simply to keep yourself insulated. You ever notice people that are untouchable because they're always so busy, you know? And that in some sense, they, um, you, you can, they're using their busyness to stay disengaged from other people, to keep on the outside looking in. And so basically what they end up doing is, is they obsess over their things, They obsess over their stuff. They obsess over their their boyfriend-girlfriend relationship, their family, their jobs, their hobbies, anything. But they use it to tend their own patch and keep the world at large. That's sloth because there's no principle that's tying them together. Okay, so that's the definition of sloth. Secondly, though, I hope that you'll begin to see now how that sets us up to get at the heart of sloth. What's really going on in this? Um... The reason that it's important to remember this is because sloth will oftentimes come, at least over a period of time, with a profound sense of despair. And the reason is, is because it comes with spiritual indifference. Look y'all, spiritual indifference in a world that is saturated with God takes a lot of work. Now follow me there because I just threw in a little statement that went right past you. The Bible makes a claim about the world that is in many ways fairly offensive if you're on the outside of of Christianity or any kind of religion at all. Because it says that God is so present in the world that His His work and His motivation or His movements throughout the world is obvious to people. It's there. Whether we acknowledge it or not, He's there working in and among us. So therefore, sloth, which is spiritual indifference, the Bible says, takes a lot of work. You have to pursue actively the ability to deny that God is there. So much so that the Bible refers to that person who says that there is no God as the fool. That's what it says in Psalm 14.1. The fool has said in his heart that there is no God. That's the slothful person. And so what we get in Proverbs 26 that we just read is this caricature of the slothful person. Verse 13, the sluggard looks up and says, Oh, there's a lion in the road, a fierce lion roaming the streets. In other words, he's the kind of person, the Proverbs writer says, who makes stupid excuses for their lives. There's a lion in the road. Verse 14, as a door turns on its hinges, the sluggard turns on his bed. He's stuck to his bed. He literally finds no reason to even get up in the morning. Verse 15 says the sluggard buries his hand in the dish, but he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. Laziness is indeed a great descriptor of the slothful person. And then, of course, he's wiser in his own eyes than seven men who answer discreetly. In other words, despite all of the foolishness in his life, he still always gives himself the benefit of the doubt. 
The slothful person is never wrong. They're always looking at themselves as being um, the, the one who's in the right. In other words, the sloth is a caricature of life. They can't be taken seriously about anything because they themselves take nothing seriously. But to be honest with you, Pontius Pilate is the ultimate sort of like embodiment of sloth as it comes to us in the Bible. I mean, here you have a man, you know, in verse 37 who looks and goes, Oh, so you are a king. By the way, after Jesus has said that in verse 36 about, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. But my kingdom is not from the world. When Pilate looks in verse 37 and says, So you are a king. (laughs) He's saying that sarcastically, okay? He's looking at him saying, really, Oh, good, you're one of those kinds of kings. You know, the kind of way that you talk to someone you know, who just said that they were from a spaceship orbiting the earth. You know, like, oh, gotcha. So you're from outer space then, gotcha. In other words, he's a sarcastic outsider who has nothing to say but cynicism. The Bible refers to this person in other places as the scoffer. The scoffer is that person who honestly, their only contribution to life is just this kind of cynical just downplaying of everything in life because there's nothing important. So then finally, you get this incredibly cowardly act where he looks and says, I find no charge in this man. I can't find anything wrong in Jesus. And so what does he do? Turns him over to the crowd, right? Turns him over to the crowd so that they can kill him. A slothful person will end up in the end being the epitome of cowardice because they never take the moment to do the courageous thing, because they don't stand for anything. That's what that little phrase means, I think, when Pontius Pilate ends his discussion with Jesus, where he looks and goes, what is truth? That's it. That's the heart of sloth, when we cynically look around us and say, what is truth? Is there really anything out there that's worth living for? Look, for what that means, y'all, is that the heart of sloth is someone who lives their life with no reference to God or anything else that they might stand for. Um, But I want you to note that on the other side of this, that in turning away from God, the slothful person has to turn to something. They turn to something that sort of pursues them. I always try to explain this. um, Going back to talking about Jeffrey and and, and what was wrong with old Miss students and apathy, Jeffrey was not a video game guy. (laughs) Uh, He detested the, the doggone things and at that time, you know, there were, this is back when, you know, the PlayStation, and I think the Segas were the cool system back in those days. He was just completely off-put by these things, mostly because my theory was that he wasn't very good at them. I, on the other hand, had a little bit of skill in those areas and was happy to sort of, uh, <laughs> you know, play with some of those uh, games early on. Um, but it was really interesting to me that I began to note the commitment that it took to stay up until 5 in the morning playing Halo. <laughs> You know, and to wire together, you know, four systems so that all 16 of us can have a massive, you know, one room, you know, uh, thing. Because I began to realize that the Master Chief, okay, what, what, what was a fantasy, doggone it, okay? For the guy who's playing that game, ladies, it's not laziness that makes him play that game. What, what, let me put it this way. The man stays up until 4 a.m. playing Halo for the same reason that you stay up until 4 a.m., 4 a.m. watching chick flicks, okay? In other words, there's this sort of idea of life that ends up being pursued that, doggone it, I'll stay up all night for because it was just the sweetest movie. Did you see what he said to her? Oh, my God, I'm just going to cry. You know? Meanwhile, the guys are like, dude, watch this. 
The difference between boys and girls. Extra little thing there. Um, look, the bottom line is, deep inside, the, the, the cynics and the slothful are only serving something that is inborn in them. And that is a need to live in something bigger than themselves. That's why I said there's this tension in the slothful person where they look and they don't want to care about anything and that they can't help but caring about something. Look at their daytimer. Watch what they spend their money on. The cynic, as it turns out, in an incredible turn of irony, ends up being uh, uh, quite um, not cynical enough because he ends up having no way to justify even his own sarcasm and cynicism. If he's going to make fun of life, he's got to be standing on a platform from which he can make fun of life. But in the end, he ends up being hurtful, both to himself and those around him. And he ends up being what the Bible calls the fool. Okay, so what are the symptoms then of sloth as it comes out of our heart? Uh, Evagrius in the 4th century worked up a bunch of, uh, uh, of characteristics of sloth that were kind of translated into modern times by a campus minister out in Stanford. He said this, he said, we're slothful when we get immediately bored with spiritual activity. S- immediately bored with spiritual activity because it just seems so irrelevant to, to what we're going through in life. The slothful person struggles with empty prayer lives because there's no real relationship. There's no real interaction that's going on between the two of them. Number three, you read the Bible like it was a phone book. <laughs> it's just simple, meaningless Numbers that get flipped over. There's no sense of personal exchange. Number four, the slothful person, when they get in fights with friends, they don't spend the time that it takes to work it out. What they do is they get new ones. Why? Because it's easier. It's just easier in life to go actually and write those people off who, with whom I had conflict and move on. These are the kind of people who are constantly claiming that I can worship God anywhere. I worship God in my bed on Sunday mornings when I'm taking a walk out in the field. Because they never actually want to give of themselves of what it takes to interact with other people. Look, the opposite of love is not hate. Have you ever heard me say this before? The opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. Sloth ends up being, in its essence, the very opposite of love. Um, because indifference is something... Look, when you hate someone and you get angry at someone, you're at least affirming that something about them is worth getting upset over. But for someone who's indifferent, you walk away, that's the ultimate insult. It's the ultimate thing that's opposite of love. It's the reason why children misbehave. You ever been in a supermarket and watched a little kid just scream and pitch a humongous fit? Why? Because no attention is actually worse than bad attention. And if I can draw attention to myself you know, in a negative way as a child, it's better than being ignored. There's a book by a guy by the name of Chap Clark who is submitting that in the last 20 to 30 years of youth culture, that includes you and kind of me for that matter, we're living in the first generation of parents that were too busy for children. And there's a, you know what the title of his book is called? Hurt. He said the deep of the heart of this youth culture is a hurt because it's the first generation whose families and parents were too busy to care because they were constantly out making their fortune and constantly out too busy, and they were spun out to do their own thing. And we're starting to see the next generation's birthing of slothful behavior. It's incredibly mischievous, uh, the opposite of love. Okay, so what in the world do we do about our sloth? To be honest with you, 
I think if you really look into this, you'll see lots of this in all of our hearts. We all struggle with sloth. Um, and the funny thing is, is the biblical antidote to sloth is not to work harder <laughs> or to work smarter even for that matter. As it turns out, the problem with sloth is not how much you work uh, or how much you don't work for that matter. Uh, the problem comes in why you are working. The Bible's diagnosis of how we deal with, with uh, work goes back to what we said at the very beginning. That the world that God, the Bible assumes that the world is dominated by the reality of God, that He is inevitable, and that human beings have tried very desperately with all of their actions to avoid His presence in their life in any way they can, even going to incredible lengths to deny His own existence. This is what the Bible refers to as working. When the Bible, especially in the New Testament, you get to Paul, when they talk about being saved by your works, it's talking about that effort inside the human soul to try to get God out, to live life without reference to, <laughs> without reference to His existence, completely as if He wasn't even there, right? And so therefore, and again, we're not talking about the value of a good day's work. That's not what the Bible's talking about. Um, the Bible looks and says what it condemns is your working so that you can be acceptable to God. This is now how you can understand Romans chapter 4, verse 5. Where, actually, verse 4, where it says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Did you catch that? To the one who does not work. And for a lot of people, that kind of weirds them out. They're like, uh, but I'm supposed to do something, right? Like read the Bible or pray? And that's not what it's talking about. Of course read the Bible and pray when someone comes to embrace uh, uh, God and, and what Christ has done on the cross. But what the Bible says is when it says, but the one who does not work is the one who works to save themselves, who works to push God out into the periphery of their lives who works to sort of establish your own name rather than His purposes for your life. This is why in the Beatitudes, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed, happy, well off, <laughs> content with their lives are those who are thirsting for righteousness. Now, by the way, that righteousness is not talking about legalism or some sort of Victorian piety, but they are external uh, it's not talking about external, but internal realities. An internal reality of the righteousness of God's favorable impression of me, who looks at me and says, I'm going to treat you as if you are righteous. And the Bible looks and says, hunger and thirst for that, and you're going to be filled, right? Look, Jesus is saying that at the heart of every single person, there's a supreme desire to be right with God, to, be, to, to please Him. But the second you realize that all of your hurrying around, right, all of your jam-packed daytimer, all of your obsessive behavior, all of your, all of your zany personality, for the more outgoing of you, uh, all of your crippling shyness, when Jesus looks and says, the minute that you begin to realize that all that stuff really is just a way to avoid God, he says, at that moment, you're going to start hungering. And the funny thing about hunger and thirst, they are life-consuming desires, are they not? It's very difficult to ignore a, a growling stomach. 
It's, very, it's almost impossible to ignore a parched throat because on the inside, we're longing for something. It takes over everything. In other words, Jesus is not just talking about a passing interest in the things of God, a theoretical approach to the things that He's saying. But He's saying, I want you to hunger and thirst for this by uncovering the fact that you're just that hungry and thirsty. right? Uh, and of course, this is when Jesus comes to deliver the good news. The good news is, those people will be filled. Now that's an interesting choice of words. He doesn't say they'll go and fill themselves. He'll say the moment that you begin to acknowledge and stop trying to hide with your personality or your daytimer or, or, or your fantasy life or your avoidance of relationships, the moment that you admit that that's what you're doing is you're running away from God, guess what? I'm coming to fill you right then. That's the moment in which you'll be filled. It's not something that you've got to create on your own. It's something that I come to bring for you. In other words, the moment that you begin to cure your sloth is when you own it. (laughs) You own the fact that that's true of me. I'm killing myself by my own cynical, better than that worldview, above it all. (laughs) You know, too, too important to care. The Bible looks and says, own that, and I have the moment in which I can free you of it. And here's the funny thing, is you know what that turns you into? It turns you into somebody who's, who, who, around whom it's okay to get excited about something. Do you know these kind of people where you feel a little self-conscious if you get excited about something because they're just going to kind of laugh at you for it, roll their eyes at you, for no other reason than the fact that you got excited about Is there anything worth living for? Is there anything worth dying for? The slothful person says no. Jesus says yes. And there's the clash of the worldviews between Jesus and His people. Okay, the sin of sloth.